and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 93 where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and through Cubic Zirconia distributors with a minimum order of 10,000. Hmm. This week we have quite a book. Quite a book. Quite a book. A very... <laughs> Unique book, an independently produced book. It is titled Kill Image Number One, cover dated June 1993, written by Hart D. Fisher, art by Joe Duncan Grunt and Jerry Foley, or Foley, possibly. Maybe. Published by Boneyard Press, and the cover price is $2.95. Now, before we even get into our uh, our bio, we mm-hmm. want to uh, proceed with a little disclaimer. Now, the book we're about to read is cruel. It's a uh, cruel and excessively violent, uh, and cruel and excessively violent things happen to real people, mm-hmm. people that you've heard of, yeah. people that we have discussed at length before on the show, and probably will discuss again. Uh, now, this book is really it's a story of a man venting his frustration at what the comic industry had become in the early 90s uh maybe it's his uh maybe it's his inability to to really stay with all the uh, the big money players right. that were really running around here um there was a lot of uh, maneuvering uh, perceived and real <laughs> that uh, the bigger guys were pushing the little guys out and this is kind of an answer to that yeah um now, it's very pointed. Uh, it's pointed on the times. It's very angry. And as, you know, as we've alluded to, it's also very, very mean. Very mean. It is graphic, and it's got some uh, dirty language that we have done cleaned up in a in a fashion. But if this sounds like something <laughs> you don't care to hear, use this as your opportunity to nope on out. We won't take it personally. You can come back next week for something a whole lot more lighthearted and family-friendly. Uh, our coverage of this book is not an endorsement of it. It gives us an opportunity to share a strange oddity from a strange time that few people even know existed, uh, much less actually read. This affords us the opportunity to research and discuss the book's uh, very interesting creator, which is going to be the real uh, illuminating the part of the yeah. show. But we are going to go through this comic, which also has its own revelations <laughs> of, its, of its own kind. But, of course, let's talk about the man himself. Yes, Hart Fisher. Hart D. Fisher was born May 27, 1969 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he grew up in Chicago, Illinois. What's the D stand for? He ain't telling. All right. Uh, in an interview with OptimumWound.com, he discusses, uh, he discusses growing up uh, certain 
dark period of his adolescence. Uh, we're going to use a quote here. He says, My friends were getting into drugs. My uncle killed himself. My cousin drowned in Florida on a church trip. I lived on the south side of Chicago, which meant when I got into a fight, it was normally with a group of people, not one-on-one, and that was never pleasant. A, father's fr- a friend's father shot himself in the head. Another friend OD'd. Several of my friends in high school had been molested, male and female, or were still in the situation of being molested actively. One of my friends had been molested by her stepfather repeatedly and got her pregnant. She had to leave for a while and have the baby in another state. Her father was a cop. Wow, that's almost uh, as much as a season of Melrose Place. It's it's up there. It's up <clears throat> but, there. Uh, yeah, that, that should set the uh, stage for... The kind of future Hart Fisher may have. He did graduate from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 1992 with a bachelor's degree in fine and applied arts. While in college, his worldview grew even darker, and his art was constantly under attack from instructors for being too violent. Also while in college, he wrote an opinions column for the university's independent student newspaper, The Daily Illini, and uh, got fired for being too controversial and too outspoken. And that's sort of like that'll tell you, like we say, this is a little peek into We're what, setting the table. what yeah. is coming later. As far as the art side, we have Joe Duncan, who, uh, as far as we know, drew this book. That's it. <laughs> so, if, but really, if anyone can fill us in on more, or if you happen to be Joe Duncan, please hit us up at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, we'd love to tell people more specifics about this very book if you can give it to us so uh absolutely please hit yeah, us because we did research and it, there are a few artists named joe duncan out there but right. the art style it's been you know it's been a quarter century so art styles change uh and like the some of the ones we found had like cyrillic writing so i don't right. know if that was him or not and you definitely don't want to ascribe this to the wrong person you know certainly what I mean? you not. definitely want to give <laughs> credit where not. it's due in this matter Now we're going to talk a little bit about Boneyard Press. Uh, 1991, with a loan from his grandfather, uh, Fisher founded Boneyard Press out of his Champaign, Illinois basement apartment. The first title that he published was called Dark Angel, and uh, we're going to touch on that a bit later on. Uh, Boneyard touts launching the careers of a lot of people you might have heard of in the comics industry, including John Cassidy, Gerard Way, and Duncan Rouleau. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit more about old Gerard Way in a little bit. Um, Now, Boneyard was responsible for the first intercompany horror crossover, which sounds like there might be a couple extra descriptors in there. Yeah, really. That title is Razor vs. Dark Angel, The Final Nail in 1994. Now, Razor was created by Everett Hartsoe and was published by London Night Studio. Razor made her first appearance in Razor No. 1, cover dated October 1992. Boneyard also published the first Russian comic in America with Rectum Erectum Number One, colon In the Penile Colony. Mm. Uh, don't Google that if kids are in the room. Trust us. Actually, you may consider not googling that even if you're all by yourself. Yeah, I don't think I, don't think I really want to know exactly what this <laughs> uh, Rectum Erectum contains. But I, I shared that cover with you, and that was yeah, uh... that was about more than I ever wanted to see. So yeah, but uh, they did do it. So. Uh, Boneyard also published Flowers on the Razor Wire, which featured the work of Mike Diana, a man whose work was banned from diamond distribution and ruled as obscene by the United States Supreme Court. Diana was the first person to ever receive a criminal conviction in the United States for artistic obscenity. Hart states that he held uh, the, comic book least fo- the comic book legal defense fund's feet to the fire and insisted they assist Diana 
lest he go public with what they did to him earlier in the decade. And we'll have more on that in the second half of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether Fisher can convince them or not, the CBLDF did stand by Mike Diana. Now, this Mike Diana fella has a wild and winding story. He's, I think he's the only American to go to prison for art. Wow. So, I mean, this is a this is a pretty big deal. Uh, and, you know, we might actually re- need to reopen our Underground Comics box set and yeah, hopefully expand upon this fella. Yeah, insert, man, there's a few, a few people we could expand on, too, so maybe we'll, we have Absolutely. another episode of that coming. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not all Death and Darkness from Boneyard, however. Uh, in 1997, they would publish something called Soldier of God. This is a Christian comic written by or created by Peter King. Uh, Hart says, it's about this superhero who gets his powers from quoting scripture. And he goes on to explain, when Peter King, the guy who wrote it up, sent it to me, I kept wondering if it was a joke. I kept thinking, don't you know who I am? Well, he found out. But yeah, why not publish the book, that is. Uh, not everything I put out is demented. And uh, he goes on to describe Peter King as, quote, a wacko, All which right. <laughs> we can neither confirm nor deny. There are a lot of Peter Kings out there in the world, too. Sure. Uh, now, Soldier of God is among the books that Fisher and Boneyard would uh, donate to literacy charities like in prisons and all over the place. And uh, he'd also give them out at Halloween. Uh, now, uh, with that said, we're going to move on to a different independent publisher that's image comics because without them <laughs> this book could not have been made yeah, you got to kill somebody right, you, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the title is kill image it's not kill you know nothing so now in case this is the first time you're joining us we'll uh hit you up with uh, the quick and dirty on image here uh in the early 1990s seven of marvel's top artists reportedly led by todd mcfarlane and rob liefeld tired of working on characters that they didn't own or get a decent uh, enough cut on t-shirt sales for, uh, they decided to break out on their own. And Image Comics would only have two rules, basically. It was that Image would not own the, char- the creator's work, uh, the creators would, and also, no Image partner would interfere creatively or financially with any other partner's work. Image itself would own no intellectual pro, uh, property except for the company's trademarks. That would be its name and its logo. And that logo was designed by current vice president of Vertigo and integrated publishing at DC Comics, a fellow by the name of Hank Canals. Yeah, we'll be covering Image Comics, the Marvel Exodus, and the rampant speculation that followed in much greater depth sometime in this life, we promise. But we for, think, yes. for completion's <laughs> sake... Uh, the seven founders included Todd McFarlane. He was from the adjectiveless Spider-Man to Spawn. Rob Liefeld went from X-Force to Youngblood. Jim Lee from X-Men to Wildcats, Covert Action Teams. Eric Larson from Amazing Spider-Man to Savage Dragon. Wilsey Portacio from Punisher to, after a little delay, which we actually did talk about in the past, mm-hmm. uh, Wetworks. Jim Valentino, Guardians of the Galaxy to Shadowhawk. And Mark Silvestri went from Wolverine to Cyberforce. For more on the who's and why's of Image Comics, as well as an in-depth look at the big four launch titles, please check out Cosmic Treadmill Episode 22, Youngblood Number 1, Cosmic Treadmill Episode 28, Wildcats Number 1, Cosmic Treadmill Episode 36, Savage Dragon Number 1, and then Cosmic Treadmill Episode 68, Spawn Number 1. They're a lot of fun. Uh, we had fun doing them, I know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're all available in the archives. And also as a box set at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com for easy consumption. Yeah. Uh, now that gets us to the main event, Kill Image number one. 
a book that uh, we've been talking about doing for about a year now, but it's uh, it's it's always kind of intimidated us a bit. It has for sure. Also, also, <laughs> this is not a totally easy one to find, but uh, it's true. It's, it's true. There. Now, uh, the cover features photos of the Holy Trinity of Image. That's uh, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, and Rob Liefeld. They all have whited-out eyes with skulls, crosses, and R.I.P. written across their foreheads. Our hero, or maybe our writer, or maybe they're the same dude in all but name, he sits in the foreground looking just about as early 90s badass as one could ever hope to look. Now, the Kill Image logo is foil embossed and uh, features the lowercase image comics I in image and a spawn-like skull finishing off the A in image. Now, the inside front cover has a foreword, which is referred to as an epitaph. And uh, to give you but a taste of what we're in for, uh, in this epitaph, our host states the following. I've been reading about the Holy Trinity of Image for over a year now, and I'm sick of it. Here's the goods as I see them. Jim's a talented artist that sold out his talent. He's a pandering whore. Todd is a superhero artist who's doing what he does best, drawing superheroes. So what if he's an illiterate schmuck? He's the first to admit it. Rob can suck a rock out of my ass. All right. (laughs) I don't know how this no-talent putz got anywhere. Who'd he know? Wow, uh, no, but uh, it didn't say no, but you know there it is. Uh, he really seems to have a problem with these fellas, huh? You know, yeah. I mean, uh, you got to think of what, why he considers Jim Lee a whore for you know at this point leaving Marvel and self-publishing his own work. Really, that's the like opposite. the dream, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he kind of gave up being a whore to do his own thing. Uh, he's only he is six years away from selling Wildstorm to DC, so at this point. He's totally an independent, you know, His creator. own dude, yeah. Uh, obviously, his biggest beef is with Liefeld, and uh, we'll definitely see more of that as we get into the story. Uh, apparently, though, Fisher had interviewed Rob for the Comics Journal. Art recalls a great Rob Feld, a, quote, a great Rob, Feld in, Rob Liefeld interview, which was stunt casting. I should post the original audio tapes. He really spills the dirt after an hour of bullspit. Mm-hmm. Now, it is odd seeing a book of this vintage having a problem with Rob's art. It seemed like that was kind of an unspoken thing back then. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was exciting and new, more frenetic than just, you know, bad. Uh, that was at least until those adorable 40 worst Rob Liefeld drawing clickbait lists that started populating on the Internet. Also, we cannot forget Booby Cap. We, you know, we mustn't. Loves him and, you know, <laughs> Rob Liefeld is, is thinking about Booby Cap all the way to the bank, folks. Don't mm-hmm. you worry about him. But uh, Hart goes on to compare this to a Mad Magazine spoof, only with more gusto. Mm. Is that what we're calling it now, gusto? Uh, There were already Image spoof books out there, one even put out by Image Comics themselves. But in Hart's opinion, they were all after the safe buck and were afraid to go for the jugular. I think all the other parodies could have called all the the Image founders' mothers whores, and they'd still be playing it safe compared to what we're about to read. Mm -hmm. Now, if we peek down to the Indicia, Mr. Fisher includes the following. If you mess with my book, I will find you and burn your genitals with cigar butts. No bullspit. If your retailer doesn't carry our books, send us his name and we'll have him whacked out. Uh, should we even continue with this, Chris? Uh, I mean, I really mm. prefer my genitals to be burned free. You see why we were a little bit trepidatious about this, <laughs> yeah. one, but uh, we've uh, we've already come this far, and uh, our genitals might as or might already <laughs> might as well already be on fire. It's true, yeah. So uh, our story opens with our hero Keith, 
He's on the phone with a stand-in for Diamond Distribution, and they're having quite the angry and oddly specific exchange. Yeah, Keith goes, what? What do you mean they're not going to carry Plague Number 3? Those pages I sent were hot. It's some of Bill's best writing. You can at least put it in your catalog and let the fans make the decision. All you do is ship the books that, hey, when did you, start, when did you guys start deciding what gets published? What policy change? No, I haven't been notified about any policy change. How in the hell do you expect my books to sell 10,000 copies? No, I, most, mostly I sell 2,000. I don't have that kind of advertising budget. You'll only solicit what sells over 10,000 copies. What market condition? You guys are making more money now than you ever have before. Come on now. Only current year Marvel books get that sub 10K pass. Don't you know anything, Keith? Can't be with the program. <laughs> what do you mean comic shops have been putting pressure on you to trim down the number of books you offer? They don't want to buy it. They don't buy it. I'm not yelling. Image? What do those spandex fetishists have to do with anything? Uh-oh. Looks to me like we're establishing our conflict here. Maybe. You gotta be kidding. Marble Comics... Yeah, very, very clever. Nice. Yeah, Marble. <laughs> Marble Comics is going to add 70 new titles to its universe to wipe out the competition. Mainly Image. Scary, but true. If you were to scan the solicits for 1993 like we did, you'll find that he's not far off the mark on this estimate. Then, like now, Marvel was cranking out number one issues like they were going out of style. Uh, unfortunately, it still has not gone out of style, apparently. <laughs> Worth noticing, this isn't an endless barrage of relaunches either. The market was already healthy enough to sustain this kind of bloat for now. Mm-hmm. Now, our man Keith gets hung up on by the cubic zirconia distributors or whatever and uh, decides to head to his local comic book shop to break the bad news. It's gem distribution, Chris. Oh, we, we don't know that yet. That's true. <laughs> now, he takes his Camaro. Uh, they really seem to want us to know that he drives a Camaro. Uh, he takes it over to World's Best Comics. Now, we're not sure if this is in a reference to an actual shop that uh, he frequented. Uh, closest that we found was World's Best Comics and Toys in Sacramento, and that opened in 1985, and it's probably not the same place. But, I mean, we might assume that it was a real place at some point. Uh, a lot of shops would close up in the next few years, so oh, tons, they yeah. can't have all been documented, and, and it does sound like a pretty cut-and-dried name for a comic store, if you ask me. Sure. So, inside, Keith greets a fella at the register named Paul and proceeds over to the new release rack. Along the way, we see posters for Batman and Spit, with two Ts, which is an obvious stand-in for Spawn. A rat-tailed youngster happily marches by wearing a Spider-Man shirt. Now, at the rack, he sees a stereotypical chubby nerd. He's got glasses, acne, a bad haircut, uh, his belly is hanging over his belt. And uh, naturally, he's reaching for the latest issue of Spit. Yeah, he says, Aren't you that publisher who lives on Weldmont? Yeah, that's me. You like our books? Are you kidding? That crap will never be worth any money. You read any of them, kid? Why bother? No trading cards, no prism covers, not even a foil embossed logo. And worth noting again that this very issue has a foil embossed logo. Yeah, he's having a little fun with it. And uh, <laughs> also, it is an oversimplification of comics collecting in the early 90s, but it's sadly not really entirely untrue, to be honest. No. It's very, very uh, accurate to, yeah. uh, to an extent here. Uh, Keith continues, You're telling me you decide what to buy on how much junk and gimmicks are thrown in? What about the story? The characters? 
story. None of your books are in Merlin's hot pick list like the image books. Why don't you get some real artists like Rob Leftfield? Probably goes without saying that Merlin is a stand-in for Wizard Magazine, whose a hot pick list defined many a wide-eyed speculator's pull list for much of the early 90s. That's right. And Rob Leftfield is, well, I mean, we pretty sure you can figure that one out. Yeah, you know that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Leftfield? He couldn't draw his way out of a wet sack of... Ugh. Merlin's a slobbering fanboy, Mac. And while walking away, the nerd says, Hey, man, you suck, and your books suck. The only people working for you aren't good enough to work for Marble. Poor DC left out in the cold again. They're not even in the in the uh, equation here. But in <laughs> fairness, DC didn't realize they were in the 90s until around 95. So they're they're yeah. slow on the uptake here. Extreme Justice didn't hit until 95. Right. <laughs> now, uh, after the nerd pays and leaves with his new stack of spit, Keith approaches to break the news to Paul who not only works for World's Best Comics, but also is a, an artist, maybe an inker for Keith. Seems that way. And he says, yeah. hey, Issues 3, Zinc. You want me to go ahead and do the cover as well, or do you have somebody else already doing it? Paul, I have bad news. It's over, man. No more plague. No more small press. Keith goes on to explain uh, Gem Distribution's new policy, which edges the small press out of their catalog. Slump-shouldered, Paul asked Keith if he should spread the word among the plague staff. Which seems to be just some dude named Bill. You want to tell Bill, or should I? You do it. I'm going out of town. Then, Keith is struck with inspiration. Better yet, go ahead and draw the cover. I'm going to make some room for our books. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, so next thing we know... Keith is on the road heading toward Southern California. Mm-hmm, but we're going to jump ahead and we're going to skip Keith's trip and we're going to just go to sunny Southern California. And we're going to visit the offices of Image Comics. Inside the Holy Trinity are holding a meeting. That's right. It's uh, Jim and Todd are in the same room and Jim Lee says, I just got the call from Tom over at Jim. They finally give it into our pressure. No books under 10,000 copies will be solicited in their catalog. And Todd McFarlane says, About time those forking bastards gave in. If we're going to expand our goddamn market share, we got to weed out the little pukes. Jim says, It might not increase our share at first, but it will free up a lot of capital that is being spent on underground books. So in a couple of months, we increase our forking upper offering up to about half of what Marvel Marvel Comics is. Let's throw some more money at their remaining hot artists. That should be enough to knock Fork and DB into third place and for, for good and establish us as the new number two. Now, DB's that guy who hijacked that plane back in the 70s and right. he jumped out with the two, 200 grand in a parachute? Uh, allegedly, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the third uh, member of the Trinity here, Rob, uh, Rob Leftfield, is, uh, he's also in the room and he goes, d- d- Does that mean I get to do another young crap book? And cross it over with superb guest starring the that invincible fella and grow lots of women with huge tats and sweat, grunting guys in tights. Can I? Can I? Can I, huh? <laughs> I mean, young crap, come on. Even what? for biting satire, this is a birdie week. At least young crud rhymes. Right? It's right yeah. there. It's right there, folks. Yeah. Uh, Jim is patting Rob on the head, and he says, Yeah, sure, Rob. Just make sure they're carrying big guns. The biggest. And Todd just scowls at the camera, and Jim and it's says, "Great, that face! Yeah, he makes. It, it's a very <laughs> it's amazing. It's a pretty good McFarlane <laughs> face." Uh, Jim says, 
You can do all the books you want. You can even solicit some that will never appear. Oh boy, maybe I'll be on TV again. And that exchange was pretty funny, I gotta say. <laughs> never <Yeah>. appear. <laughs> Todd starts throwing darts at a dartboard that has Spider-Man's face on it. Yeah, he says, <laughs> that'll teach those forking bricks over at Marvel to give us our own books, starring their most popular characters, and pay us millions to do whatever we want with them. And he hurls another dart. Should we still keep up company policy on shipping all books at least two months late? I think that forking idea may be where it fit. The retailers are complaining about failing fan interest. Jim says, Once we push on DB, then we'll bury the market with books, and they'll all ship on time. The latest idea made us seem a little less polished, a little more independent. No one expects us to be around for long, but that's how we want to be perceived. We just have to make sure no one leaks that it's us behind Jim's policy change. And Todd says, that gets out, I'll rip their gosh darn throats and pee in their forking faces. Maybe that'll get me a little respect. Yeah, that, that ought to do it. Yeah, it'll that, get you a little something, you I'll tell you what. Now, it's mo it worth noting that during most of this business talk, Rob <laughs> is uh, sucking his thumb and having himself a nap. Uh, with that taken care of, we rejoin our hero, Keith, who's stopping for gas somewhere in Texas. He buys some junk food and also some unspecified comics while he's there. Then we jump ahead and we rejoin Rob Leftfield, who is sitting out by the pool with a bikini-clad woman. Yeah, she says, Robbie, shouldn't you be plotting out your next issue of Young Crap? Nah, I don't need to plot anything. I just sit down and draw, and the story unfolds as I go along. That way, everything's fresh. Ah, uh, the classic Robert Kaniger approach. Indeed. <laughs> I'm a genius. Not like those other Jagoffs I work with. Jim's probably schlocking it out at the board right now. More evidence, maybe that Fisher might have had a bit of begrudging respect for Jim Lee. I definitely get yeah, that he's, he's working, impression. Yeah. Although, it's not going to be too respectful, as we will find out soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, 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 a, it's a false. Right. <laughs> now, uh, we have uh, the woman here, the bikini babe. Her eyes literally go crossed. Yeah, she says, Oh, Robbie, you're such an artist. Best-selling books just pop off the top of your head. I could never do that. And Rob continues to gloat about his fame and fandom until it's time for him to go to work. Gotta go put in my 15 minutes at the drawing table for today, honey. I love you, Robbie. And Robbie loves you. I'll be right back. Then suddenly, Keith. He sort of looks kind of like a like Dream of the Endless here, doesn't he? Uh, you know, actually, that might be a bit more interesting uh, than, than him just showing up, you know, with a, in a Camaro. But think about the same amount of sense, too, I think. It, it might, yeah. <laughs> Pardon me while I forking puke. Jism, that was sickening. And Rob strikes a pose. I must warn you, I'm an expert in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Keith slabs Rob on the noggin with a bonk. He goes, cool your heads, Junior. And then Rob, bleeding from the head, attempts to plead with the backyard invader. <laughs> Please, don't shoot. I'll give you anything. Your own miniseries. No, no, your, your own super team. Hey, look, we have a happy ending here. Play could find its home at Image Comics. You'd think so, but Keith instead points to the bikini baby and goes, How about her? Oh. Yeah. Well, one you honor? She's yours. Just don't shoot me. Now, why is Rob so convinced he's going to be shot? Keith doesn't even have a... Ooh. Yeah, Keith has a gun, and uh, he just pressed it up against the the back of the Bikini Babe's head. And he... B 
blows her brains out with a blam. Nice. Uh, you feeling dirty yet? I think uh, I fear <laughs> for this month's water bill. I need so many showers already, and we have just many, gotten many to it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Rob, who is now covered in his girlfriend, wife, friend's blood. <laughs> Ew, ick, 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 get this blood off me, it's it's gross. Keith goes, shut up, shut up, I just blew her brains out. Do you give a spit? Don't shoot me. You're just a punk, a stuck-up fanboy that made it to the big time. Well, let me bring you back to Earth, kid. Sure did a lot of damage for such a little gun, eh, Robbie? You need to learn a little bit about the reality of violence. I'm going to beat you to death. That ought to teach you something. Then Rob thinks to himself, What would Superb do? Strike a pose? Vogue? Rob then launches into a very Lyfieldian leap, you know, the crouch leap kind of uh, <laughs> squat leap. Uh, the odd anatomy and speed lines of planning and also a <laughs> right into a punch in the gut from Keith. Nice yell, fanboy. But it'll take more than a few speed lines to keep your teeth. Rob goes, ugh. Keith then punches Rob in the face. Doesn't take bulging pectorals to kick your butt, sweetie pie. Where's the grimace, kid? How about that vigilante frown? You're seeing a lot of white dots right now, aren't you? And it hurts like a bitch. Rob goes, Ugh. Keith continues, You're too stupid to think of crowding out the independence. It's okay to be a lousy artist, kid, but to brag about not having any art training, that just ticks me off. Anyone ever tell you about backgrounds? Or all those effing speed lines have a purpose. And now Keith draws his gun and shoots Rob square in the nuts with a blam. Rob, I think your fly's unbuttoned. That was also pretty funny. The, that the, was, any, that was joke a good line. Of, any joke about those button your fly commercials, I gotta chuckle at. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob then reveals that Jim and Todd are behind this whole thing. Uh, but it actually, he says Jim and Tob. So Keith mm-hmm. probably broke his nose with that earlier punch, I think is the idea. Yeah. Uh, Keith nudges Rob into the pool with his foot and he monologues a bit. I'm sick of product being shoved down my throat. I'm sick of infantile fanboys ruling the market because they've got the money. Because I'm a jealous, sick fork. Now, there's a surprising bit of self-awareness there, I gotta admit. You know, he's yeah. <laughs> he's definitely showing that he, he's not doing the right thing here. He's doing it out of just vengeance, you know. Mm-hmm. Me and this little gun are gonna shake things up with irrational acts of violence. Well, you know, there is a school of thought that suggests that any premeditated and goal-oriented act is rational. But I'm not going to argue that with the guy holding a gun. You know, no, you no. go right ahead, sir. <laughs> You're as bad as marble, creating empty, soulless characters. Yeah, nothing as instilled with soul and powerful <laughs> as whatever the hell plague is, right? I mean, right. this sounds like we don't know what it is. It sounds derivative. <laughs> Keith continues, stepping on creators that aren't part of your company stable. I'd like to stick around to see whether you'll drown or bleed to death. But I've got some false idols to bring down. Later, we see a Spawnmobile. Uh, that's a Spitmobile. Of course, what was I thinking? Um, yes, yeah, so later, a Spitmobile pulls up to a large house. In the car is Todd McFarlane. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he removes his, spo- his spit helmet. That's right, you better get it right. He says, <laughs> he says, woo, forking A, all right. Then... Keith, branching a couple of issues of spit. 
One looks to be a riff on Watchmen for some reason. Yeah. Excuse me, Mr. McFarlane. Could you please sign my books, sir? If you got 20 bucks for each signature, make it out to Pushy Forkhead, right? And then Keith push, produces his pistol and presses it right up against the Toddster's face. Will this do, butthole? Get the fork away from me, you crazy cork soaker! Todd, such filthy language from one who draws books for children. What would the parents say if they heard you talk that way? Fork the parents. You're not a mugger. You're a rejected, pathetic loser of a fan. Not quite. What then? Some washout independent publisher? A forky loser that couldn't play hardball with the big boys? He just pulled that one out of the air, right? right? That's right. like a hell of Let's a guess. Just uh, it on. <laughs> does Todd is Todd like is he accosted by failed publishers it like might on not the be his first here? time? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Keith mutters, crowded me out. Yeah, I'm forking crying for you, pal. Lots of supply and demand, no demand for you. Another instance of our writer becoming self-aware? He really does almost seem to play devil's advocate with this yeah. whole thing, and, and it's 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 interesting to read, yeah. It is. Uh, then, for a single panel, probably the best-looking panel in the entire book, our hero is drawn in a very image comic style. That's not how it is. That's not how it is. And next panel, we're back to the normal not-so-good art, and Keith has just <laughs> shot Todd in the hand. That's not how it is, Mother Forker. You didn't play fair. You stacked the forking deck. I didn't have to win. I just wanted to play. Fork you, fork you, fork you, fork you. Try making a living as a writer now. In a world without computers. Yeah, really. I mean, he shot Todd in the hand. You'd figure that would hurt his drawing more than that, his writing, right? That would be the right? thing, right? That would be the main yeah. draw. But... It should be like, make, try making a living as an artist now, I maybe. I mean, you could, oh. you could even dictate to type if you really had to, right? Sure. Like a secretary if we're just writing, but... They can have Jim Lee do it for him. Sure. <laughs> uh, so last stop, we now follow our man Keith to the Image Comics' offices. Uh, he enters to find Jim Lee, or whatever name he would have, here, they don't, they don't show it. No. Uh, he's tappity tapping away on his computer. Keith brandishes his pistol and uh, from behind says, Looking over the projected market share reports, Jimmy? Expecting a jump of about 8%? Kind of. Why don't we sit down and talk about this? You seem rather upset. You didn't think we'd just roll over for the board... <laughs> <laughs> Let's try that one again. You didn't think we'd just roll over for the butt fork, did you? Never heard of a coup d'etat? I'd say he has. Uh, coup d'etat would be a, a 2004 crossover event published by Wildstorm Comics. Ah, so maybe we have uh, old Keith What's-His-Face here to thank for that. Possibly. Still, you, you put that in the old uh, memory bank and help yeah. out for 11 years. Keith then blows a hole in Jim's computer monitor, which, you know, won't actually erase the data. Maybe this is like one of those Gabe Cotter teaching contracts we learned about when we read Re Welcome Back, Cotter, and this just cancels everything out. Probably. I'm assuming this yeah. is sort of like uh, computers and 80s cartoons, just like you shoot them in the, in the screen, smoke pours out, the whole system goes down, that's it, it's all ruined. Done deal. Right. Yep. <laughs> now, with that behind him, he then shoves the pistol into Jim's mouth, and he actually knocks out one of his front teeth in the process. Look at RSIE! Is this justice? Oh! You left the vigilante book to make more money with the mutant spit. That is to say, specifically, Jim Lee left the Punisher to work on X-Men, but you already knew that. You shafted Marble to start a new company with Malabum. <sighs> now that's supposed to be Malibu. Now the illusions yeah. are getting 
pretty lazy, I have to admit. You know, there's a lot of ways I could have gone. Might as well just use the real names. Not like anyone's reading this besides us. Give me a minute. I think we're it. This is it. <laughs> you take gobs of Malabum's money and start out and shaft them for more money. How much is enough? Does everybody have to read your book? Are you that forking greedy? And now Keith pushes Jim to the ground, pistol still in his mouth. What about those whores, Gaiman, Moore, and Mills? And he actually, I mean, he actually changes their name. Of course, he's referring like to with Neil. One, like one letter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like slight letter changes. He's talking about Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, and uh, Frank Miller. I mean, Moore, Moore's last name is M-O-R-E, which is, what you know, to be it's the same it's, sound. Yeah. Uh, they uh, each scripted an early issue of Spawn, but curiously, no mention of Dave Sim here. That's odd. Now, uh, for more information on that debacle, uh, Miracle Man, Angela, all that jazz, you can check out our three-part Exploring the Mysteries of Miracle Man series in Weird Comics History episodes 27 through 29 in the archives. That's right. That's also available as a box set at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Keith goes on to say, how much did it take to make them bend over for a book like Spit? 50,000? 100,000? And then for that answer and a whole lot more, our three-part Exploring the Mysteries of Miracle, Miracle Man series. For real. We ain't kidding. It'll tell you a lot about mm-hmm. uh, cool things. So Keith then pulls the trigger, blowing Jim's brains out with a blam and a thump. <laughs> and Keith then turns the gun on himself, placing the still-smoking barrel into his mouth. Nothing left to do but exit. Now, before pulling the trigger, he notices a particular comic book on Jim's desk. It's Plague. But not, oh. Keith, not Keith's Plague, but a comic called Plague from Marvel Comics. wonder if this is a commentary on that Marvel defiant boondoggle over Plasm and Warriors of Plasm. Or possibly this Dark Angel mess that we're going to discuss a little later. Maybe, maybe both, maybe both. But it's, no, it's probably, probably the Dark, the dark Angel, Angel thing. thing yeah. <laughs> uh, Keith goes, what the? Uh, now I know that's a Marvel book. There you go. <laughs> no, no, that one has ellipses. Oh, you're right. That is different. You're right. They stole my title. Marvel Comics stole my title. Keith then trudges over to Jim and picks his pocket. Lucky for him, he was carrying 30 large in cash. <laughs> wow. Jimmy, Jimmy, what's his face here? Really uh, rolls uh, high. Yeah. Keith, <laughs> Keith says, 30 grand ought to make, ought to be just enough to get me to New York. The end, or is it? Well, it is for us. Yeah, uh, there, there is an ad in the back of this book promoting the upcoming follow-up to this comic, which is uh, the creatively titled Kill Marvel. Oh, I wonder what that's about. Interesting. Uh, and neither of us have seen that in the real life. Uh, otherwise, you know, we'd be continuing the story right here. <laughs> uh, now, this ad features spoof takes on the X-Men and some oddly prescient 9-11-ish imagery. It's very strange. And we will post this ad in the uh, show notes over at uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Com. And that's the book. That is for it for this book. Uh, pretty wild stuff there, Chris. A little bit. You, it's you, a little you, bit. You, you dug this one up, obviously, uh, from Ben's a little over a year ago, or about a year yeah, ago, something like about that. About a year. Yeah, something and, less uh, spring. Yeah. And it, I think it just it, it captivated you both in its crudeness, but in its targeted commentary. Indeed. Uh, and yes. its insight. It's it's definitely, it's it's a 
you know, ripped from the headlines type of comic as far as <laughs> comics headlines ever, you know, those headlines. Which is a very Hart Fisher type of thing, which, and we'll, we'll, we'll give our thoughts on, on the, the story and uh, Mr. Fisher towards the end of the episode here. But uh, first, what was Keith, quote, Keith, so right. mad about here? What was he so angry about? Uh, well, he was upset about the business practices, obviously, in the comics industry. Uh, we have some quotes here from uh, Hart Fisher himself. He says, Image was formed, and frankly, the powers that be behind Marvel wanted to punish them, you know, Todd, Jim, and Rob, for daring to leave at the peak of their success and start their own thing. To crush the competition, Marvel came up with this horrendous boondoggle of a plan to wipe them off the stands, literally. Now we don't we we don't have any kind of <laughs> we don't have any kind of causality like a direct correlation here. Right. But uh, from everything we've seen with the launching of the new books, uh, th- there might be a little merit to it. Uh, oh, we, I mean, we aren't they we aren't on the, the market, inside. Obviously, yeah. you know for sure. <laughs> But, uh, you know, we, we don't know how much of that was about helping them and hurting the other guy or sure. vice versa. Yeah. Uh, Fisher continues, a comic book store has limited rack space. They felt when push comes to shove, a Marvel title would always win out in a fight against an indie for shelf space. And he's probably right there. Uh, he continues, so these morons decided to push the comics off of the stand physically by weight of numbers. Marvel nearly tripled their output to push out other books, to push the other books off the shelves, and they were looking to bury guys like me with sheer weight of numbers. Yeah, and it included editorial titled "Rallying Cry 3. Fisher would implore his readers to pre-order copies of Boneyard books in order to ensure their local shops have them in stock. He writes, "Your store owners order the books two months in advance. Reserve your copies now." Or they won't be there next to whatever hologram, gold-plated turd of the month you're supposed to buy. You have to raise your voice and make your demands heard. If the retailer doesn't smell any money, he won't climb into bed. They are unknown for daring and courage in the face of new marketing strategies. <laughs> so uh, there it is. And, you know, like you say, we can't, we can't confirm that this was Marvel's business plan. Yeah, but we I, don't have any of the internal uh, <laughs> the internal memos. I can, I can definitely say, though, that when these these publishers talk about doubling their output, uh, I can think of a couple times even recently, it kind of has the indies running scared. You know, they need these, sure. uh, they need those places and you're always going to... pre-orders, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of places now, these books have an alternate cover and then those two books, uh, one book takes up two Spots depend- at least two. It, it, yeah. de- it depends on the store too, and how they display comics. There's so many different variables to it, but uh, certainly it all adds up to the same thing. But I think we're gonna take a little break. We're gonna put the comic down, and then we're gonna come back and talk more about Mr. Hart Fisher. Hart, we're gonna start with you. You've heard uh, the parents of two of Dammer's victims. You have given us a quote that says. Um, why don't they just? Why don't Shirley and Catherine just go home and heal? instead of spending their time talking to the media. Do you, why do you feel that Shirley and Catherine Catherine. should not have talked to us? Uh, Basically, the only reason they're here is so you can profit directly on their pain live while it happens right here. That's the only reason they're here. You brought them here for one reason. I'm not profiting anything. She's making thousands and thousands of dollars by you, crying on TV, suffering on TV. I did a comic book well, about a killer as a journalistic exercise. You must know, that I, exercise. You must know, that, I know that we do not yeah, like your company. comic book. The whole talk show industry is based on festering wounds. You take people, you exploit them right there. Like the people that went off on the show that was just taped before, crying their eyes out. 
because they, they went through all this right here, right now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Yeah. We're, we're going to finish up by uh, telling you a whole lot more about the man behind this book, Hart D. Fisher. Now, when people think about the name Hart Fisher, they probably don't think about Kill Image Number 1. <laughs> they probably think about... They probably think about a certain book that he put out in 1992, and that is when he published Jeffrey Dahmer, an unauthorized biography of a serial killer. Now, uh, without going too deep here, because we're not that kind of podcast, and there are plenty of that kind of podcast <laughs> out there, here's the quick and dirty on Jeffrey Dahmer. He uh, was born May 21st, 1960, died November 28th, 1994. He was a serial killer who operated out of Wisconsin who was responsible for the rape, murder, and dismemberment of 17 men and boys from 1978 to 1991. Several of the later murders involved necrophilia and perhaps what he's most remembered for, cannibalism. Uh, he would be arrested on July 22, 1991, and he'd admit to his serial murders the following day. Uh, Jeffrey was charged with four counts of murder on July 25, 1991, and his trial would begin January 30, 1992, lasting two weeks, wrapping up on February 14th, Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. On May 1st, he'd be sentenced to 16 life terms, plus a smattering of extra years besides, which I was like, <laughs> little icing yep. on, the, on that 16-year <laughs> cake. But it was a moot point, really, because on the morning of November, November 28th, 1994, Dahmer was found by Columbia Correctional Institution guards on a bathroom floor, having been beaten to death by fellow inmate Christopher Scarver. Mm -hmm. Now, displeased with Dahmer's celebrity treatment in the media, you know, the, the celebrity status afforded to him by the sensationalized reporting, yeah. uh, Hart Fisher set to researching Dahmer in order to craft a comic book that would depict him as the monster that he really was. For a little bit of context here, Jeffrey Dahmer was actually listed among People Magazine's 25 Most Intriguing People of 1991. They popped him in that list right between Angelica Houston and Elizabeth Taylor. Quite fitting, really. Right? right? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Now, he'd also make the cover of People magazine on their August 12th, 1991 edition. Wow. Uh, it's wild, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Fisher states, at the urging of Dan Madsen, a longtime friend of his and publisher of the ultra-violent comic book Faust, that uh, for a two-month period, he would visit a local library and research the, in his opinion, more trustworthy printed material on the case. Now, that is to say, he did not watch any of the televised hearings, and that would account for his mistaking the race of one of the victims. Now, there's a mistake that would get him unsuccessfully sued, but worse yet, it would damage his credibility with the mainstream. Uh, also worth noting that Jeffrey was misspelled on the cover of the comic as Jeff Jeffery, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. Uh, the Milwaukee Sentinel, which was the major newspaper at the area of the Dahmer murders and the trial, they would describe this comic as, quote, lurid and error-ridden. Now, the comic had a print run of 14,000, and likely due to a mix of curiosity and controversy, it sold well. Unfortunately, due to mounting legal fees, Fisher did not see any of the profits and actually lost money in the venture. On May 17, 1992, the Los Angeles Times called the comic deplorably irresponsible. While attempting to point out errors in the, Dahmer, in the Dahmer comic, they refer to Boneyard Press as a Milwaukee publisher. Whoops, not Whoops. quite. <laughs> uh, the article ends with publishers, of course, are protected under the First Amendment's right of a free press, and that protection needs to be near as near absolute as possible. 
I feel a butt coming on. But with those rights comes responsibilities, including judgment and, at all times, self-restraint. Obviously, neither of those qualities was exercised in this case. So, uh, free press, unless I don't like what you're saying, uh, got it. Or also, free press, free <laughs> to glorify a serial killer and, uh, you know, yeah, make him into go. a celebrity. We're free to do that, <laughs> but not free to, to, to tell his story any other way. Uh, on June 14th, 1992, the Milwaukee Sentinel would report protests over the book, and they would ultimately get result in Fisher being sued and the book being banned in Wisconsin. Uh, where it is, it was probably the a place where this issue was the touchiest. I would imagine. You know? I would assume, yeah. But yeah. Uh, his work would go on to be banned domestically in Oklahoma and internationally in Canada, the United Kingdom, and Japan. More on at least one of those bannings in a bit. <laughs> uh, there's video of the Channel Three News report of the banning that we will link to at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Uh, on August 6, 1992, Fisher would again be sued. This time by families of Jerry, Jeffrey Dahmer's victims, claiming that he was exploiting their loved ones' names and likenesses for profit without compensation. Yes, that includes the likeness of the victim whose race he got wrong. I don't know <laughs> how that worked, but all right. Uh, to which the affected victim took great offense. Check out the Larry King clip at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. But at the end of the day, it would appear that it's a mighty easy to affix a dollar amount to being offended. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd lose. Like, you could you could affix a dollar amount to anything, Chris. You know that. Come <laughs> That's on. a fact. <laughs> uh, he, he'd lose the first lawsuit because his lawyer failed to show up. Ooh, Wild. Yikes. <laughs> now, over two years later, August twentieth, nineteen ninety four, it would be reported that the lawsuit was dismissed as quote since the victims were dead at the time of publication, name or likeness laws were not applicable. Hart recalls, "They sued my butt off. It took me years to get out of this one." The judge ruled in my favor, but in a way that I couldn't get back get any of my legal fees back, which really sucks. Yeah. Uh, Fisher would go on to publish a few sequels to the Dahmer book. They include The Further Adventures of Young Jeffy Dahmer, 1992. <laughs> we have Dahmer's Zombie Squad in 1993. And believe it or not, Jeffrey Dahmer versus Jesus Christ. In 1993. I don't, that wasn't part of his original story, was it? I don't think, right? That's not part <laughs> of the biography? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, now, there are also rumors that a Jeffrey Dahmer versus Kurt Cobain in Hell comic exists, but we haven't been able to find it. Uh, now, Fisher would appear on several talk shows, including Sally Jesse Raphael, the uh, Jerry Springer Show, A Current Affair, Larry King, among others. Uh, he would discuss his reasons behind putting out such a book and also uh, you know, defend his right to do so. These are very, very interesting to watch. And again, we will link to these as well on uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. We'll also, we're also going to link to Hart Fisher's YouTube page where he has he has done an incredible job chronicling this entire thing. Putting it all together. Okay. It's, it's a it's really good resource. If you're, if you're interested in, in this sort of thing like like we tend to be. Uh, now, in these clips, Fisher is defending his right to produce the work, as well as uh, ensuring that he only did so in order to illustrate what a, quote, piece of scum Dahmer was, or at the time is. Uh, and piece of scum, we, we know what he really wanted to say. Yeah, it was a piece of something else that starts with an S, <laughs> but there, thankfully he did not. He censored that for us, so there it is. Uh, in an interview with Wizard Magazine, this was Wizard number 94, June 1999 cover, Hart states, I'm not a fan of serial killers at all. They're monsters. They're scum. I sent Dahmer a copy of the book signed, I Hope You Rot in Hell. Dahmer was just human excrement. When asked what he thought when he heard Dahmer died, Hart said, 
Woohoo! I hope it hurt. <laughs> also in these clips, Fisher is accused, accused of attempting to profit off the tragedy, something he finds hypocritical as these talk shows were also looking to make a buck off this tragedy. When accused of profiting off the victim's family's pain, he said li uh, live while it happens and that Sally was making thousands and thousands of dollars uh, by the victim's family's crying and suffering on TV. Sally Jesse Raphael was quick to point out, you must know that I work for a company. <laughs> Which doesn't sound like a denial to us or really a, a good excuse uh, for what it is. Uh, further hypocrisy is pointed out by Hart when asked in that same Wizard Magazine interview if he had any regrets. He says, none at all. I didn't do anything wrong. And look at the victims' families. These are people that sold the cookware Dharma used to kill their kids. They sold the acid vet that boiled down their kids, and they're telling me I'm bad? Now, to clarify that, real estate magnate uh, Joseph Zyber raised the money to buy the inventory of Dahmer's estate for the items to be turned over to the family so they could sell them at auction and take the money raised as compensation for their pain and suffering. Uh, Deseret News reported on June 18, 1996, that $407,225 was raised, and after taking $50,000 in, quote, administrative fees, uh, they passed on a whopping $32,500 to each of the I 11 families. guess it's better than a poking the eye with a sharp stick, right? That's, that's about all you can true. say. <laughs> that's true. Now, it's uh, worth mentioning here that uh, there were yet more legal uh, hoopla involved over the Jeffrey Dahmer debacle. Uh, Miller Brewing Company hit Fisher with a cease and desist over a t-shirt done in the style of Milwaukee's best beer. It had a picture of Dahmer and said, Jeffrey Dahmer, Milwaukee's best. Hmm. Uh, Fisher walked away from this one, not feeling as though a case of bootleg shirts were worth the legal headache. But uh, if anyone could uh, maybe direct us to a picture of one of these, uh, just yeah. shoot us an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We I, haven't been able to find I'd it. I'd like to see what that looked like. It's, I, I definitely love a good parody <laughs> like that. Uh, it's also worth noting that, according to Fisher, the comic book legal defense fund established 1986 refused to assist him throughout these proceedings because, quote, they couldn't get behind Hart's politics. To close out the Dahmer portion of our program, we'll leave you with one final remark from Hart. He says, I wasn't molested as a child or anything. I just hate lies. I don't think violence is fun. I think it's a truly horrific act, and I show it that way. It is true. Whoa. Uh, now, that's uh, that's not all the controversy. That's one that's... controversy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most, uh, no, the most uh, widely known controversy, but mm. there are yet more, and we're going to get into them right away. Howard Stern versus Rush Limbaugh and... Rush Limbaugh Must Die. These are two comic books that came out from Boneyard Press. First, uh, we were going to talk about Howard Stern versus Rush Limbaugh. That was a one-shot that came out June 1994 cover date. At the time, Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh were the biggest names in talk radio, but for very different reasons. Yep. And uh, you could probably find entertainment in both and reasons to dislike both. Mm -hmm. um, now, Fisher claims to have been a fan of Howard prior to releasing the comic, but maybe his fandom withered a little bit when he found out that Stern personally, quote, had a problem with the book. Uh, it's a uh, a point of pride that, uh, that Hart Fisher offended Howard Stern. And, I mean, uh, you think it wouldn't be easy, but... I don't know. It's it's funny. It's like you think I, I don't know if that's an indictment on how biting the satire was or or what a uh, what a, a, what a shrinking violet right, maybe yeah. Howard is. Um, now conversely, Rush Limbaugh thought it was great, and <laughs> he actually gave Hart a thumbs up on his show. Uh, a few months prior to this one, we have uh, Boneyard Press releasing that one shot. 
Rush Limbaugh Must Die. That was cover dated November 1993. And uh, if you've seen this cover, you know this cover. It depicts Rush Limbaugh with a target over, I think, his left eye. Uh, He's got swastikas and white power written on his lapels. Uh, Now, this was a book which Limbaugh himself has said was, quote, very funny. And now you could take his reaction also one of two ways. Either he is a, you know, humorous guy that lets things like these roll off his back, or he thought it was or just very accurate and, li- people. And, and liked the way it looked. You know, he was like, oh, I wish I, wish I could dress that way. But uh, so take that as you like, really. But yeah, that's, uh, that was one thing. Also, uh, he, went up, he went head up with O.J. Simpson, of all what? people. That's right. Uh, Doing time with O.J., December 1994 cover date, and O.J.'s big bust out, March 1995 cover date, were published by Boneyard Press. Reported September 17, 1995, in the Chicago Tribune, Orenthal James O.J. Simpson had petitioned the United States Patent and Trademark Office to make a legally protected trademark out of his first initials. Uh, Sorry, orange juice. This was just a couple of weeks before Simpson's October 3rd acquittal for the murders of ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. Worth noting, uh, O.J. was also attempting to trademark O.J. Simpson as an international brand for paper goods and jewelry, and a domestic brand for receptacles, adhesives, timepieces, brooms, dusters, and yes, even cutlery. <laughs> you could have had an O.J. Simpson brand knife. butter uh, butcher knife if things had gone. You really can't make this up. It's unbelievable. So, it's like he's, he's like trolling us before yeah, the internet was really big. I, I, can't, I can't tell if he's just oblivious or if he's he's having or he's a just laugh messing with us. us. Yeah. Ah. Now, uh, during the summer of 1995, Simpson's lawyers filed suit in Los Angeles Superior Court against dozens of apparel manufacturers and retailers who had been selling merchandise bearing his name and or likeness. Their suit alleges that the companies and individuals were interfering with Simpson's own profit-making endeavors. Among those sued were our main man, Hart Fisher. Uh, we got to say that Hart was selling copies of this comic book on the courthouse steps during the trial. Uh, even in his words, going right up to Robert Shapiro, who was the lawyer and was a lawyer and part of OJ's legal dream team. So he goes up to Shapiro and he slapped a fistful of books into his chest at the court. I mean, you, you might as well just asked ahead of time, like, please sue me for this. I mean, really. Right? Uh, Fisher states that they wound up settling the suit out of court with him on the winning side, having to give up nothing. Uh, Fisher, along with other OJ Comics raconteurs, would appear in a segment on E! Entertainment News, which we will link to at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. And we gotta say that uh, when Fisher is shown at his drawing table, he's got a copy of Kill Image on his drawing table. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? Not by accident, I bet. You know, letting him know. That it's gotta... <laughs> and speaking of killing... Uh, if you recall, we alluded to a uh, conflict between Hart Fisher and Marvel, I mean Marvel Comics, and uh, that would be expressed in the comic Kill Marvel with a July 1993 cover date. This is the follow-up to Kill Image in a comic that Hart Fisher actually got Stan Lee to autograph. Uh, <laughs> the book might be at least might be at least in part due to the story of a twice-sued angel. Cover dated July 1992, as Marvel was buffing up the Marvel UK line domestically, they put out a book called Hell's Angel, which uh, might be somewhat familiar to some motorcycle enthusiasts out there, I think. And that is why Marvel was sued. Pretty cut and dry there. So Marvel settled this by changing the title of the book with its sixth issue and allegedly having to pay $35,000 to a charity of the Hell's Angels choosing. 
The name Marvel settled on was Dark Angel, which, if you recall, was the name of a Boneyard's Press first publication we mentioned way, way back in the first half of the show. This time, Hart was able to be on the other end of a lawsuit, using the very same lawyers behind the Hells Angels Motorcycles Club's victory. Marvel must have felt like they were just being attacked by these lawyers. Like they, you know, yeah. <laughs> they were like, why do we even publish this book? Anyway, uh, Fisher filed a cease and desist, which was met with a threat of Marvel countersuing over Hart's book, The Thanatos Syndrome, which Marvel claimed infringed upon their Jim Starlin-created character and current-day movie star, Thanos. But Thanatos is the personification of death in Greek mythology, has little in common with a big purple alien who wears a shiny glove. Mm-hmm. I guess we can say ultimately that Marvel settled by canceling the poorly selling title with his 16th issue in December <laughs> 1993, and that was that. There you go. A little earlier, we mentioned uh, that Mr. Fisher uh, designed some uh, t shirts. He designed a Jeffrey Dahmer t shirt, but that wasn't the end of it. Marvel can soak my cork. Hey, is, uh, is not what the shirt said. No. But, uh, <laughs> perhaps there should be a shirt out there that does say that. That'd be kind of funny, uh, yeah. <laughs> no. You know what it means. It's a, it's it, you can compare it to a rooster or whatever you want right. to do. Um, now Hart created this infamous shirt as a public statement about Marvel's business practices, which he felt focused too strongly on, as we mentioned, driving out small publishers out of the business and off the shelves. Uh, this uh, came out during a time of the Heroes World debacle, which we've discussed briefly before, and we will expand upon greatly when we. Finally, complete our yeah. Comics History series on the direct market. We're chipping away. It's coming, folks. I'm telling you. <laughs> now, the quick and dirty on that. Uh, Marvel purchased or repurchased uh, Heroes World, and uh, they would become their own exclusive distributor. So they wouldn't go through Diamond anymore. Right. They would just go through their own distributor. Uh, at the time, Heroes World was the third largest distributor in comics, and they were based on the East Coast, just like Marvel. Uh, this was a move that uh, they did not have, or this is a move that Heroes World did not have the proper infrastructure to handle. And one that, at the end of the day, uh, if you still order books from Diamond, would greatly uh, hamper the uh, direct market, and uh, the effects are still being felt today. Yeah. Now, another wrinkle in this tale that I wasn't entirely clear of uh, was that Marvel wasn't just pulling out of the distribution, but they were going to pull out of comic shops altogether. So instead of shipping to comic book stores, they would ship exclusively to their own Marvel Marts. Now, you got to figure, if this was a successful move, it might have actually buried the direct market once and for all. Oh, I think that would have been it. I think that, that would have been, been done. That would have been done the deal. absolute conclusion. And I mean, that's yeah. kind of why Warner Brothers doesn't have their Warner Brothers stores anymore. They sell that stuff in comic shops. I think that sure. was sort of a uh, you know conciliatory thing. So uh, Fisher debuted the Marvel Can Soak My Cork t-shirt at the 1995 <laughs> San Diego Comic-Con and sold 100 shirts the first day, selling two of them right off his own back. The t-shirt even makes an appearance in the Kevin Smith film Chasing Amy from 1997. This led to the San Diego Comic-Con amending their vendor contract, allegedly adding six pages of blibba blabba to stop such a thing from ever happening again. Apparently Marvel was only furious when Fisher published Killed Marvel, but they were bat-spit nuts about the t-shirt, threatening to lawsuits, attempted eviction from the con, even allegedly going so far as to send a guy to physically assault him. Though a few Marvel staffers, allegedly including writer and former editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco, actually bought one, which <laughs> is not that big of a surprise, but a little, you know, a little, little something. Also, according to Hart, longtime Marvel artist John Romita Jr. was getting physically violent and verbally abusive towards fans he saw wearing the shirt. The shirt. Uh, it's worth saying that, according to Fisher, the Marvel guys thought Kill Image 
was pretty funny. So, <laughs> you know, it's when they shoes on the other uh, kill, whatever, the kills on the sure. other foot. So Fisher uh, would eventually be evicted from the San Diego, San Diego Con and hasn't returned since. He did, however, have his mother walk the convention floor wearing the, t -sh the shirt with some duct tape with the word band written on it, covering most of the naughty word. Photos of this are easily found online. Uh, later on at the inaugural Wizard World Chicago show, Fisher was told he couldn't sell the shirts, so he just gave them away with the purchase of a comic. Yep, you buy your rectum erectum, and uh, you get your uh, that, free... Uh, that might soap. be the one thing to get me to uh, buy the, the <laughs> rectum erectum number one, to there be honest go. with you. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Fisher wasn't just doing Boneyard comics, he also did Verodic comics. Now, Verodic is a mature-themed comic book publisher founded in August 1994 by uh, Glenn Danzig. Uh, wow. Verodic is a, yeah, I, I did not know that. Nice. Uh, Verodic is a portmanteau of uh, violent and erotic. Uh, also in August 1994, August 16th to be precise, Hart Fisher left Champaign, Illinois for Los Angeles, California. And that's for reasons that we will get to in a little bit. Uh, he would be hired by comic industry magazine Hero Illustrated to interview Glenn Danzig for their magazine. Uh, worth noting that prior to hiring him, Hero Illustrated listed Fisher among their top 100 most important people in the comic book industry. And they would also dub him the most dangerous man in comics. Uh, the pair, that's Fisher and Danzig, would hit it off. And a few months later down the line, Glenn offered Hart the position as managing editor for Verotic. Hart recalls, Glenn saved my ass and gave me a shot at the big time, working with big names and a real budget to work with. He describes the position as a dream job in every way except for the reality. <laughs> He doesn't elaborate, but does offer that Glenn and I butted heads plenty. Uh, as far as we can tell, they're still good pals to this day. I, I, I've seen pictures of them together uh, not too long ago. Yeah, water under um, the bridge, I guess. It's so long sure, ago, sure. Yeah. I, I, you just expect that you're going to butt heads in, right. in any kind of creative endeavor. Uh, now, while at Verodic, Fisher co-wrote, along with Christian Moore, A Taste of Cherry. There's a story about a brutal snuff film, and that appeared in Verotica number 4. Cover dated June 1995, and uh, buckle up, folks. Yeah, in September of 1995, <laughs> Oklahoma City police received a complaint about a shop called Planet Comics from the obscenity watchdog group Oklahomans for Children and Families, or we know them as OCAF. Yes. Uh, undercover officers would visit the location twice, each time buying a copy of Verotica Number 4. Later that month, the shop would be raided and several bags of comics would be confiscated. Local prosecutors would bring the charges on the store. One count of displaying material harmful to minors, this included Veronica No. 4 and Mighty Morphing Rump Rangers from Boneyard Press, among several others that didn't have anything to do with Fisher. One count of trafficking in obscene materials. One count of child pornography. Store owners Michael Kennedy and John Hunter were arrested, taken out in handcuffs and charged with four felonies and four misdemeanors. These charges carried a maximum prison sentence for 43 years. Yikes. Bail was set at $20,000, but the CBLDF secured their release via bail bondsman for $2,000. The CBLDF secured the services of defense attorneys Mark Hendrickson, James A. Calloway, and C.S. Thornton. They were able to get nearly all the charges dropped, except those against, you guessed it, Verotica number four. 
<laughs> Planet Comics would be evicted from their uh, main location, and due to all the bad press, found that barely 20% of their customer base actually followed them to their next location. Also around this time, the police organized another raid, this time at co-owner of Planet Comics, John Hunter's home. Uh, while they raided his house, they took a store computer and 250 discs. Uh, Planet Comics would ultimately go out of business in March of 1996. On September 5th, 1997, Kennedy and Hunter pled guilty to two felony charges of trafficking, trafficking in obscenity for selling Veronica Number no. 4. Mm-hmm. We got to mention here they sold it to consenting adults. Yeah, these weren't like 13-year-old kids or something. This is they a, didn't. Yeah, they yeah. didn't just shove them in the bags. This was something you actually had to ask for behind yeah. the counter, and those those two you know plainclothes officers who came in had to actually ask for it before buying it. Um, now these uh, the two gentlemen here would be given a three-year deferred prison sentence, meaning they served no time. Mm-hmm. However, they were both fined fifteen hundred dollars. According to Fisher, Veronica Number no. Four with a taste of cherry is still, as of a January 27th, 2014 interview, and possibly still to this day, banned as obscene material in the state of Oklahoma. Now, for a full write-up from the CBLDF, you can check out the link that we're going to provide at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where they go over their entire take of it. Hmm. Um, Now, for completion's sake, uh, Verotic's website is still up though it hasn't been updated since 2015, and uh, we'll, we'll link to that as well in the blog. Well, Glenn Dadzik did just perform with the Misfits recently in New Jersey, so I guess he's been busy mm-hmm. doing that. Maybe he'll turn back to comics now that he, uh, no, he'll, he's, I think he saw the money he made with the Misfits, and he'll be doing that as long as he can. Anyway. Now we're we're going to be talking about another guy who left comics to do music in a little bit. That's hmm. true. Actually, that's true. <laughs> but uh, first, we're going to talk about a uh, film called The Garbage Man. Now, while so much of this stuff that we've been talking about was going on, and all the while that Hart Fisher is viewed as the most dangerous man in comics, Hart Fisher was the man was dealing with something even more traumatic. It was 1993, and Hart was working on his first film, The Garbage Man. Hart had become something of a local celebrity himself in Champaign, Illinois, during, due to the uh, Jeffrey Dahmer controversy. Not the good kind of celebrity, but people knew who he was. Uh, he was in the news for the Dahmer book, and even making even the making of the Garbage Man was in the news. It's in one of these news reports that we learned that the Garbage Man would cost around $20,000 to produce, and was being paid for with credit cards. This status afforded, afforded him a pair of persistent stalkers. He also received consistent death threats. There was a protest demonstration at his home in which CNN aired. Uh, some of the demonstration can be found on YouTube, and it's more than just a few yahoos, I'll tell you what. There are SWAT teams there and everything. So the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan were reportedly coming to town, and the police suggested Fisher leave town for the weekend. But Hart refused, stating, I hate the forking KKK, so I wasn't going anywhere. He instead hired the band Third Stone to play live and held a big old barbecue, which he called the Dahmer Q. Again, video of this available on YouTube. His home was then broken into while he was out of town at a Fangoria horror convention in Los Angeles. Hart says, while I was gone, the news outlets in town were all broadcasting that I was out of town. Gee, wasn't long before someone robbed my house. Mm. Back to the garbage man. It was about a black serial killer who targeted white women. It was actually announced in the very book we read just now, Kill Image Number 1. That same rallying cry to the faithful number 3 column, uh, Fisher would write, on July 16, 1993, we start principal photography on Boneyard Press's first film. It's called The Garbage Man. It's the first film about a black serial killer. It's written and directed by myself. 
Cinematography by Rob Gibson and will be edited by Bill Yukik. We take we will take no prisoners. Now, seven days into shooting, this is on July 22nd, 1993, Fisher's live-in girlfriend, Michelle Davis, was raped and murdered by a 20-year-old black male named Eric Daniels. Yeah. Um, now, da- Davis was a college student attending the University of Illinois, and she worked as a night clerk or a night auditor at the Charterhouse Inn in Urbana, Illinois at the time, and that's that's where the uh, the event happened at, at the Charterhouse Inn. Uh, now, this is around that time we mentioned that uh, Fisher left to go to Los Angeles, and this is why. Uh, Hart recalls, anyone who's read Poems for the Dead should know that when those poems were written, I was insane and suicidal. I moved to L.A. to get away from the pit I was in and to finish The Garbage Man. By the time I left Champagne, I was playing Russian roulette with a 38 special on a regular basis. It was time to leave Champagne. I bet. Yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. pretty rough. So Fisher would spend much of the next decade as a key witness during three murder trials to ensure Daniels remained behind bars. In 1994, Daniels was sentenced to death by Judge Harold Jensen. It would be overturned in 1996 by the Illinois Supreme Court. In a retrial in 1997, before Judge John DeLamar, Daniels was able to shake the armed robbery charge. Murder and rape, however, remained. In March 2001, Daniels was convicted of felony murder and aggravated criminal sexual assault, and was once again sentenced to death. Daniels hasn't quite been a model's prisoner, and uh, we could continue with his antics for a few more minutes, but we've already given this guy enough time, I think. We don't need to uh, talk about him. Easy enough to find by Googling if you're interested to know more about him. Fisher wrote a true crime novel about this called An American Horror Story in 2011, which is available at AmericanHorrors.com. Also, the aforementioned Poems for the Dead, 1995, and the follow-up, Still Dead, 1998, which he wrote during this early grieving process. Now, back to the garbage man. Uh, even discounting this this horrible tragedy, uh, the project was still kind of snake bit. Um, following the murder, Hart's lead actor, James Meredith, would hold up production for more money. Uh, Fisher had to head out to a Milwaukee death metal concert to raise the money, <laughs> but Meredith walked off anyway. Wow. Uh, and so the film had to be produced without, uh, finished without him. Uh, partners Rob Gibson and Bill Yukik uh, were going to edit the film, of course, in Los Angeles. Uh, Bill would either tell Hart that the footage they shot wouldn't work out or it was just no good. Um, Bill wound up getting into a car accident with much of the film material in the car with him, which is an edited cut of the film and paperwork. All got burned. Wow. Um, On the other side, Rob also worked on the cut for a while, but he just, you know, petered out. He gave up. And it would take Hart several years to compile everything again. Uh, The Garbage Man would finally be released on June 30th, 2009. Wow. Via Hart's own American Horrors label. Okay, glad he hung in there, though. You know, he really wanted to yeah. get that movie done. Uh, yeah, so, wow, what a wild story that is. So yeah. This, this one is slightly more lighthearted, but not Yes. Really. <laughs> uh, on April Fool's Day, 1998, Hart Fisher faked his own death. His managing editor dummied up a fake obituary from the Los Angeles Times and leaked it onto the Internet. They attempted to get the obit into Wizard Magazine, too. And uh, we know a thing or two about fake obituaries being run in Wizard Magazine. You can, uh, too, if you check out Weird Comics History, episode number 18, The Strange Story of the Century in the Archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the claim in the obituary was that Fisher committed suicide. The further claim was that he committed suicide because he couldn't cope with his homosexual tendencies. This would be reported on various comics websites, but 
nobody came out to show their respects, <laughs> and that might have been just because it was April 1st. You know, people Maybe. are pretty guarded on that day of, for mm-hmm. uh, news, breaking news. Hart says, all the people who have ever given me a hard time, and no one came out to piss on my grave. <laughs> he remained dead for a week until the Comics Journal and Comics Buyer's Guide teamed up to verify the news. The Comics Buyer's Guide allegedly contacted Hart's day job employer at the time and an ad agency and tried to get him fired. Hart says, luckily for me, my boss was in on the joke and thought it was pretty damn funny. Mm-hmm. Now, as you can see here, we have a lot of, uh, you know, big guy versus little guy here in uh, in these uh these Fisher clashes here. And uh, he still very has very much an us versus them mentality here. Uh, we're going to quote from a March, thir- March 18th, 2013 interview with the outhousers.com uh, in, in, in regard to the comics industry. He says, uh, the more I've researched the legal merits of DC and Marvel's supposed ownership of the term superhero, the more angry I've gotten. I grew up getting ganged up on, on Chicago's, uh, in Chicago's South Side. It infuriates me when I see the bullies gather to attack a solitary smaller guy. That's what's going on here. Since DC and Marvel are the same size with giant corporate parents, they decided it would cost too much to fight each uh, fight uh, fight each other over this. So instead, they're going to go after someone they think will be an easy victim. Uh, continuing a little bit on DC because he really hasn't made many comments no. about DC just yet. He says here. Look at Alan Moore. Look at Jack King Kirby. Look at Frank Miller. All titans in their day, all made promises by deviant sodomites who forked them over every way they could in the name of the dollar. Have you read the pressures DC placed on associates of Alan Moore and how they used their hiring and firing abilities to pressure Alan to sign a bad deal he refused to sign over the Watchmen, even if they hurt his friends literally? Yeah. Uh, And we have talked a little bit about that, I think. Mm -hmm. We we brushed on it. We don't know... We haven't gone in depth, but we do. No, we have definitely touched. We've on definitely it. heard about you know Alan Moore. That's part of the reason he's so salty is that they kept going to his friends and having them come yeah. on, Alan. Why don't you sign and whatever? And uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty underhanded stuff. Hart Fisher mm-hmm. knows what he's talking about. Now it's a fact. We mentioned Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance, that band, uh, not an mm-hmm. actual romance that either of us had. No. And of course, DC's Young <laughs> Animal imprint, working for Boneyard a moment back or a while back now in the first path. So without further ado, Hart Fisher versus Gerard Way. From an interview with bloody-disgusting.com on February 14th, 2014, which we will link at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, they ask, you've been vocal about your hate for My Chemical Romance's Gerard Way. What is it about the guy that gets under your skin? Because Boneyard Press published his first book on Raven's Wings? Hart says, short answer, Gerard Way is a liar and a fake who devalued Boneyard Press products and implied that I was a liar by his deceits. And instead of owning up to his deceptions, he kept on lying and sets his fans loose on me for an online hate campaign that hurt my wife's recovery from chemo and radiation therapy to combat her ovarian and cervical cancer. He continues, in order to inflate orders on his upcoming comic book, The Umbrella Academy, that's Umbrella Academy Apocalypse Suite, a six-issue miniseries cover dated from September 2007 to February 2008, which means that Gerard Way actually got books out on time at some point. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Dark Horse Horse editor Scott Alley and uh, Gerard Way made a major press push stating the falsehood that The Umbrella Academy was Gerard's first published work in comics, which they knew was a lie. And he goes on to say uh, Gerard's first published work was done over a decade earlier when Boneyard Press published his series on Raven's Wings. 
Issue number one was published in April 1994, written by Gary Way, drawn by Jose Santos with inks by Dan Green, and a fully painted cover by Rob Nemeth. And he says even more, Dark Horse and its editorial staff knew all about this, but decided to pump the numbers up with a lie about first published work. They were even lying about it when directly asked by some members of Gerard's fan club. They claimed that Gary Way was not Gerard Way. According to Dark Horse, they were two different people. Uh, Fisher goes on to claim that Gerard Way mobilized the My Chemical Romance fan base against him in a way that, as we mentioned, further exacerbated his wife's condition. He says, Since the doctors in Japan, uh, his wife, Waka Fisher, was Japanese, uh, had told me that her cancer was stress-related and that too much stress would kill her. Again, we'll link to the entire interview over at Weird Comics History. Um, on February 26, 2008, there was an article from RollingStone.com uh, by Daniel Kreps, and that provides a short retort from Gerard Way. Gerard says, I sent Hart an email years ago before we finished uh, my Chemical Romance album, Revenge, thanking him for believing in me, in me and never got a response. I'm not ashamed of what I did for him, and I wanted to see him in person and thank him. I never had the chance. Uh, Dark Horse editor Scott Alley adds, Hart published Gerard's first comics when Gerard was 15. I don't think we've ever said Umbrella Academy is the first Ger comic Gerard did. Uh, Fisher claims that the ad they ran in preview said otherwise. Uh, we're, any, we're unable to confirm or deny. Uh, since yeah. Umbrella, <laughs> and since Umbrella Academy is about to become a Netflix show, good luck Googling and finding anything else about Umbrella Academy yeah. besides Netflix crap. What comic? Yeah. There was a comic? We don't remember <laughs> right? a comic. <laughs> Uh, it's worth saying, too, before the Dark Horse schmaz, uh, Hart would say that the following about Way in a November 21st, 2008 interview with OptimumWound.com. Gary Way, another young thug I'm proud as fork of, and you guessed it, I published him first. His last album with My Chemical Romance, The Black Parade, it really helped me through some tough times last year during my wife's chemotherapy, uh, and that's saying something. Next time I see this kid, I owe him a big forkin' hug. So, boy, did he change his opinion. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit down the line from that. So, uh, very interesting fellow, this Hart Fisher. Uh, yeah, it, as, as we went into it, obviously this was going to be a very Hart Fisher episode. Mm -hmm. uh, now, post-comics, Hart Fisher has done quite a, quite a bit also. Uh, in adult films, he worked for several adult film producers, including Vivid Entertainment. Uh, we assume behind the camera. <laughs> I would have to think, um, I think you know, so. probably. Uh, also, American Horrors was originally stated, started, sorry, was originally started as a distribution site created to serve the Japanese market. Fisher's wife, Waka, was a horror fan from Japan. In 2008, they signed a deal with Global Broadcasting and Syndication Incorporated to create American Horrors, the television show. GBS executive Lisa Jones Johnson recommended to Hart that he be the on-screen host. American Horrors became an international television program and a DVD line. Fisher was headhunted by Alkiviades uh, David, a Greek billionaire <laughs> and a majority shareholder of Leventus David Group, which owns Coca-Cola Hellenic, the world's second largest Coca-Cola bot bottler, to create the American Horrors Network for its internet-based television provider, Filmon TV Networks Incorporated. American Horrors now is, 20, is now a 24-7 horror network available to stream both online and via Roku, which doesn't look to still be affiliated with Filmon. Uh, we'll link to where you can check it out in the show notes, or you can add channel code AMHOR on Roku. 
He also does some podcasting himself. We have Heart Attack Radio. Uh, Fisher, along with co-host Josh Hadley, host a podcast wherein they, according to the iTunes blurb, tear apart the latest government foul-up, corporate ripoff, or other stupidity in the culture. Now, this was originally conceived as a sort of like an MTV News-esque top-of-the-hour segment that would uh, be airing on American Horrors, and they were going to call it Real World Horrors, what you should really be afraid of. They said that it was kind of—it was more scary than the movies, so yeah. they decided not to— not to Yeah, to take you out of, take you out of the uh, <laughs> escapism. Absolutely. Uh, now, the show seems to uh, currently be on a bit of a, in a bit of hibernation, and that's probably with good reason that we'll, we'll get to in a bit. Uh, it was last o- updated in October of 2017. And uh, we'll link to that as well at the uh, at the show site. Uh, now he didn't leave the comics industry entirely. Of course, you can never leave completely. You'll get dragged, or you know, have some feelings about it. And Hart uh, Fisher still feels that though comics, uh, as though comics are a part of him, and he, if he had the time, he'd like to get back into it. As for his fandom, he doesn't really read them anymore because he can't afford to keep up with them. He says producing TV shows costs money. He also says, for all the movies and fanfare, the comics industry is in real trouble. Leaders of the industry are clueless and have little to no respect for their readers or what they've invested into a story or character. The financial investment these customers have in your characters, the people just dumping years of continuity, throwing personalities into the garbage for a Twitter bump, for a blip on what's trending that day. They have no idea how to grow the market and engage audiences and draw in new readers. If you cannot do that, you're spinning your tails to a steadily tightening circle. And I'll tell you something, Chris. You could have said that quote. <laughs> that, I thought uh, maybe for a second that was my quote. It really, I mean, you know, right down to Twitter bump was really the the, uh, <laughs> the thing here. It's, uh, yeah, a really interesting fella here and uh, interesting story. So, yeah, what, what, what's your what's your first thoughts here, I think? Uh, I think anybody anybody who's uh, who's familiar with the the genesis of my blog or anybody who's uh, been my professor at school <laughs> knows uh-huh. that I've uh, that there are certain subjects that I just fall into and uh, Hart Fisher was definitely one of those subjects. Um, when uh, when we started this, I thought this was going to be just a us laughing about uh, an awful kill image comic. Right. Yeah. I thought, I thought and, it was going to be kind of like gymnastics, right? Like a little. Yeah. Yeah. Just like silly a goof silly. Like that. Yeah. And uh, and as mean-hearted as uh, Kill Image was, you, you don't want to say you agree with them, but I mean, it's there's a lot of uh, a lot of truth to the way the market, the way the industry was uh, right. kind of set up at the time, and it's easy to see how frustrated somebody could be at that kind of situation because it, it, whether it's fair or not, uh, the person who it's unfair to is always going to see it as being unfair, and I think. Uh, I think that he saw it as unfair, and I think you, you you can't just write that off as nonsense. I think going through his you know his bio, especially the second part of it that we did, you mm-hmm. see he's obviously a confrontational person. Certainly, he's a guy with it, and he has a chip on his shoulder. But there's, there's a, another reason why we were so scared to do this episode. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, yeah, he might he might come. We might be the next ones on his uh, hit list. But there's reasons for it, you know, and Perfect. and the way he's describing the industry at the time. Is not off. I also found it interesting that, uh, you know, at a time when it was not in fashion to publicly uh, demean the the holy trinity of image, yeah. there he's doing it. You know what I mean? He's he's right there and he's saying incisive, insightful things 
mainly bashing Rob Liefeld, but he, but then, as you mentioned, uh, we mentioned earlier, that wasn't really a thing people were doing it, behind closed nobody doors. Was gonna, nobody was going to burn that bridge. No, not nobody not not yet. Gonna, yeah. Uh, I, I have a feeling, you know, like I say, behind closed doors, there was plenty said about it, but out in public, it was all about this is the new thing, and people definitely told classic uh, artists to start drawing like Rob Liefeld, just like people mm -hmm. have been told to draw like Kirby decades before at Marvel. So, uh, sure. you know, he's not, he's he's talking about an actual thing, and, you know, ultimately, I you know, Chris and I believe that free speech is... Sacrosanct, you know what I mean? This is something yes. to be maintained. And the difficulty of free speech is that it's always going to contain stuff that you don't want to hear, see, or read. I mean, as I said before, I really don't want to get a comic called Rectum Erectum, number yeah. one. I, you know what I mean? I really have the title alone. I'm, I'm done. I'm, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm walking away from it. But I don't think it should be eliminated. You know, I, I think that uh, if there's a market for it, I think that market should be explored. There's definitely a market for stuff like Jeffrey Dahmer and uh, even, you know, Kill Image. If it happens to be too small to be supported, then let that happen. But mm -hmm. let's not uh, cut it off before it, you know, can do anything. And we got to also look at his convictions here. I mean, this isn't, this is before the internet. You can't, you're not just going to make like a art page drawing right. a picture of Rob Liefeld getting, getting his nuts blown off. Mm -hmm. This is something that he, you know, paid artists for. He paid to have printed, he paid to have distributed. He really walks the walk, talks the talk, and and has no uh, has no apologies for it. Even while burning uh, every bridge, you know, obviously burning every bridge. Yeah, yep. he, he was obviously a persona non grata among many people, but he he kept at it. You know, he had and I'm think. glad you said that because that's because I mean one of the things that I want the listeners to know is that we only are getting one side of the story. Yeah. So we're getting the Hart Fisher version because nobody talks about him. You know, we have the one Gerard Way quote. But uh, there are no retorts. There are nothing agreeing. There's no confirm confirmation or denial of anything he's saying, which uh, just further illustrates the burnt bridges. Or maybe it's maybe people think that it's not worth the hassle, or or it's just something that would just become such a labyrinthine. It's <laughs> it's it's like like most things. It's probably a combo of you know, and people have Certainly. their own personal reasons. But it definitely looks to us like there's somewhat of an effort to kind of, like, write him out of the history of comics. Mm -hmm. Not that I think that he should be looming as large as some, ever everybody, but this is a pretty interesting story. Uh, and, you yeah. know, he, he went through a lot of stuff for comics. He went through a lot, so... Yes, I think he, he should be named with some of the pioneers <laughs> of the independence and the late or the post-underground, I guess we can call it. Yeah, I'd, I'd, put, him, the 90s. I'd put him in what I would call the Peter Bag. Uh, Certainly. What, who was the Chris Ware. Guy, Chris um, Ware. Um, the eight ball guy, who am I thinking of? Oh, Daniel Close. Daniel Close. I mean, you know, and not necessarily for art style, but just as far as like people doing their own thing at a time. I mean, heck, I mean, you, you, can, yeah. you can drop all the names. They're all people that, that made comics that, and, you know, we went through this in the Underground Comics series too. Some of those are some of the most brutal, gross comics you could ever, certainly, you could ever hope not to look at, to be honest <laughs> with you. But, this is this is the this is the price that you pay for that kind of freedom is you're going to see and hear things that you do not agree with and that violently not agree you know what I mean not close yeah, to like agreeing a, like with like a guttural reaction just like that you hate and uh, but in order to have the kind of you know the expression that that we profess to have you gotta kind of like allow it. find yeah. a space for it somehow you know what I mean I'm not I, obviously I don't think that. An eight-year-old should necessarily have bought Kill Image, you know, 
but uh an adult you know especially in a closed shop it just it just seems like this was definitely to get on his and and you know his he's his was not the only violent explicit comic on the stands uh oh definitely not and i think dc has more explicit comics than than this one these days these to days. be honest with you <laughs> uh, it's like a blood fest in there so uh yeah this was really fascinating you know chris did uh, you know pretty much all the point work on this uh but it really it just turned into this story of this really interesting person that uh wanted to show and show some shine on a seedy side of comics i guess in a way this is a guy that we talked about this a little bit off the air, but like when the CBLDF will not get yeah. on your side. I mean, that's and we have we had we have, we were discussing little theories for that. Maybe they just thought it was a little. The word toxic is huge now, but maybe it was too toxic in the press, right? And maybe they thought it was. Uh, maybe they thought it was a battle they couldn't win. Exactly. So yeah. That 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 side that could definitely be it because this is this is a a Leo Lafont's group that. A legal defense group that can't afford to get into a lot of battles and you know publicity they, battles, you know. And I mean? they they can't have a lot of uh, negative checks on them either. No. They can't be, they can't be looked at as a as a legal team that loses half the time. Yeah, so. they lose they lose half the time, and all they do is support Nazis. So like that's basically <laughs> what they don't want to be. But uh... certainly not. But uh, this has uh, been a fascinating uh, trip. Um, I, I I doubt he'll listen to the show, but I, I don't think he'd like that we edited the language to be yeah, cleaner. Yeah, uh, sorry. We are, a, we are a cleaner show. We try, um, to, we try to keep somewhat clean, but definitely if you listen to this episode with your children, then you are a bad parent or guardian. So <laughs> congratulations <laughs> on that. We have, we, have a, we have a nicer one next week. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, before we go, we do want to mention something here. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Fisher stated that that ordeal he had with Gerard Way put a little added pressure on his wife, Waka, who uh, was recovering from uh, cervical cancer. Um, now, she did survive that bout of cervical cancer, however, would later battle colon cancer and anemia, and unfortunately, she passed away earlier this year. Uh, Fisher had set up a GoFundMe account to uh, help pay for her treatments, and it's still up because, unfortunately, medical bills don't go away. Nope. <laughs> Um, we figure it's no skin off our noses to uh, offer, you know, if anybody's interested in helping out, we will link to the GoFundMe at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, mm. or you could just go to GoFundMe.com and search Hart Fisher. That's H-A-R-T Fisher. Yeah, uh, you know, take take a look, see what you think, but uh, definitely uh, a lot to go through. It's, you know, multiple bouts of cancer is not pleasant uh for anyone involved and i don't think that is a crazy medical diagnosis that i've given so uh if you would like to talk about heart fisher or about how you how you would have killed the image people or anything we've <laughs> talked about in this episode you want to talk about oj simpson whatever you like tell us what you're thinking about comics cork soaking t-shirts that's right somebody you want to, <laughs> if you know have a lead on some marvel can soak my cork t-shirts you can uh write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history and tumble us on tumblr at cosmic t-mail history.tumblr.com the uh show account for twitter is at cosmic t-mail and i'm on twitter at reggie reggie i'm at ace comics you can see our weekly writings about current DC Comics at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you can check out Chris's personal blog at ChrisIsAnInfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a different DC comic from any point in history every single day of the week. Many, many weeks running, and you just, <laughs> I believe today, with today's entry, you've concluded your brightest May 
Why this may was, have it, done. was it today or yesterday? Was your... uh, yeah, uh, well, one of the days. One really. of those days. You actually <laughs> yeah, went through it. And, and I've been saying a little bit this month, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it now that it's we're not going to probably talk about it again anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, if you really got to check that out, it was it, Chris really broke down the uh, DC's Brightest Day event, which was right about before the first yeah. Flashpoint. Yeah, and, and really shows how it makes a good case for bright, the Brightest Day having been intended as one thing. And then somewhere along the line, it became another one. So uh, it's a mere month's worth of posting. But not really. Go check it out at uh, <laughs> ChrisInfiniteEarths.com. You will, you will be educated. Thank you. We also have the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, that I think we plugged today more than ever. I think so, um, yeah. I don't think this and, is uh, going to be a – the show notes are almost going to be like a syllabus. Yeah, the, the this is a, a bibliography of sorts here, where uh, you know there were some uh, in, incendiatory things said, and we want to make sure that we do have our bases covered. Uh, so if you did want to read them in context, you can do so. We will have all those linked. We'll also have uh, plenty of those videos linked uh, with a uh, heart on Sally Jesse and Jerry Springer. Uh, very very interesting reads or not reads watches. Mm-hmm. That show just how quickly society has changed because, uh, I mean, he was nearly crucified for this, where that wouldn't be a thing today. It's uh, or he wouldn't it wouldn't be a thing maybe a few years after that. It's a uh, very very indicative of how quickly the culture was changing. Also, also the for the female, uh, you know, show hosts or whatever the uh you know the, the jackets that they're wearing it's almost like something the david, yeah the yeah. david Byrne wore in the 80s these giant padded <laughs> jackets it's like you don't see that anymore they seem to have toned it down so but the glasses are the best the glasses yeah, yeah that's not like jesse glasses like window panes like you just don't see this anymore uh but anyway that's uh pretty much we'll wrap it up for this one uh i think that's all we got from this week chris got anything else for him no i think that'll do us Well, until next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill litigiously. You're a world that's silent, you only talk in fact. You know you're always right, cause you know how to move it step by step. PhD to show you're smart, with textbook formulas that do you stop. Just like a factory hand, something is wrong here. You won't find it on a show. You won't find it on a show. You won't find it on a show. Be polite in the pyramid you hate. Sit that scotch, get that raise, this ain't nobody at all!